You're listening to the Onside Podcast, the podcast for innovation-driven entrepreneurship here in Atlantic Canada. I'm your host, Alex McCann. This is season two, and the theme this month is the journey of becoming an entrepreneur. I'm joined today by Michael Marcel Pollock, also known as Gana Gawatrita. Hopefully I've gotten that somewhat okay, which means Little Dipper in Mohawk from the Bear Clan. He's dedicated to fostering indigenous pathways to solve global problems through his gift of two-eyed seeing. He's working to incorporate Haudenosaunee great peace into modern innovation frameworks such as design thinking, human-centered design, and agile to develop what he calls creation-centered design and is committed to helping organizations around the world and communities reconcile different ways of thinking using indigenous worldviews and others. All right, Michael, I'm so happy to welcome you to the Onside podcast. Thanks for joining us. I shared a little bit uh, with our guest, a little bit about your background. But of course, I always like to give my guests an opportunity to have you tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. So so who is Michael? What are you all about? Yeah, well, I guess first I'll say Nyawen, which is Mohawk for thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm. Who am I? I love this question. And, it, you know, it's interesting. So typically in a community, when we would say an introduction or respond to a question similar to like, who are you or nice to meet you, it would be more, um, we would say like, what is the land where you are from? Mm. And so I feel a sense of responding and answering that question to tell you a little bit about who I am, mm. but also a little bit about the land that I'm from. Mm-hmm because it embodies some of the characteristics and it's also taught me a lot of lessons. So as you noted, my name, mm-hmm. Ah, which means little dipper or roughly translated little little bear in the sky, little mm-hmm. bear in the stars. I like that, I like that. And I'm Mohawk and I'm Polish. Mm-hmm. And it's important for me to mention those elements of my identity because I grew up very close to Mm-hmm. both of those cultures. Mm, interesting. I, I, I knew my family. I knew where I came from. I knew my grandfathers and my grandmothers on both sides. I knew my parents and my cousins. And growing up, I was able to observe the contrast between those cultures mm-hmm. throughout my whole life and really kind of start to highlight them as I always would look back and start to reflect on the experiences I had. Mm-hmm. And so I'll start there with myself more in the family element before I speak to the land. And so my mother's Mohawk and my father's Polish. Mm-hmm. And in Mohawk or Haudenosaunee community, we would say, you are what your mother is. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and did your mother give you that name? No. Oh, okay. No. So traditionally when one gets their name, there's a little bit of ceremony behind it. And so I received that name through ceremony. And actually, my naming ceremony was very unique, not traditional in the sense of Mohawk. Mm. But perhaps that's a different path. <laughs> that's a different path. Um, back to the land. Back to the land. We'll get to there. We'll get. We'll we'll circle back around this. I feel like there's an interesting story there. But back to the land. Yeah, and my observations around the contrast between my families and cultures growing up, and so. One thing that I observe is that my, is my Polish family always seemed to have more opportunities. And so my Polish grandfather, he was a prisoner of war. 
And he, uh, you know, near the end of the World War II, he escaped and came to Canada, settled in Hamilton. He was mm. a carpenter and he built homes with his skills of carpentry. Mm. And once he was settled here in Canada, he had built seven homes mm-hmm. on the same street. He owned them and rented them out. And, and over the course of his life, he sold those homes and mm-hmm. used them to um, provide for, for the family. My Mohawk grandfather was an iron worker mm. in New York and Buffalo, right. which is a very common trade for our mm-hmm. community. And as a direct relationship to the Indian Act here in Canada, my Mohawk grandfather was not allowed to own anything. Mm. So not allowed to own or accumulate assets Mm -hmm. or wealth as a function of the relationship with the crown. Mm -hmm. And so both grandfathers were working in skilled trades, hard workers, worked their whole life. One was able to build and own assets and and the other wasn't. And that's just one generation uh, for me and my family. But the result of that, when I look at and observe my family is, I like to look at, as an example, my cousins for for perspective. And so all of the Polish side of the family, all my cousins own their homes, have university degrees, Mm -hmm. married, healthy lifestyle, healthy family. Mm -hmm. They own assets, have savings, educated. And it's the exact opposite on the Mohawk side of the family. Mm -hmm. Nobody has beyond a high school education of all of my cousins. Many of them uh, had kids at a really young age. And over the last four years, two of my cousins have uh, died uh, as a result of opioid crisis. Oh, wow. And, um, and so there's these like symptoms of this ability to kind of, this contrast, this ability to participate in an economy mm-hmm. or the exclusion from participation in an economy is probably more appropriate. And so... That really kind of impacted me because I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about, you know, my unique situation sitting in between those two worlds and being able to be one of the only, be the only person on the Mohawk side of my family to have obtained a, you know, graduate degree and uh, Mm -hmm. gainful employment and um, kind of correct that, that trajectory of our, of that side of the family. But I also appear, Mm -hmm. I'm white passing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's like, an interesting observation that I've just been reflecting on. And, and then, you know, transitioning over to the land. So, like, I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, which others refer to as uh, the armpit of Canada, <laughs> right? It's a, a blue-collar town, an industrial city, uh, which, you know, the economy was really built on the steel industry and the manufacturing industry. But there's a unique thing about Hamilton that I've experienced growing up where there's an area of town around Lake Ontario where all the steel mills are, Mm -hmm. and it just seems perpetually gray. You know, it's always kind of dark and smoggy. Mm -hmm. And when you're arriving into town, into Hamilton, a very distinguishable scent of sulfur will enter the nostrils as you're getting kind of, you have to drive past the steel mills if you're coming from the east from Toronto into Hamilton. So you, you drive by this this strip of uh, steel mills and industry, uh, whether the windows are up or down, the smell permeates and that smell is familiar to me and feels like home Mm -hmm. but my observation is you know with that economic development that happened and that industrialized development uh it created a a situation where the relationship with the environment like the lake around that area is not 
you can't swim there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's been an impact on on creation, on fish life and, mm-hmm. and wildlife in that area. Mm-hmm. And directly 30 minutes away from there is the community that I grew up frequenting, uh, spent time. So my grandfather and, and our family is from Diandanega, which is near Bay of Quinte. But he came down and settled because his work was in Buffalo and Niagara Falls and New York. Uh, so he settled in the closest community there, which would be Six Nations of the Grand River, or as we would say, uh, Oshwiga. Mm-hmm. Oshwiga means the land where the river parts. Mm-hmm. And he settled there. Now, Six Nations, that community, if you were to pull it up on Google Maps from satellite view and look down at it, uh, you would notice and you would observe this patch, this area, which is a deep, 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 dark green in comparison to everything that surrounds it. And that deep, dark area is Six Nations of the Grand River. Mm. And everything else you would see like gray, the development of cities, and you would see really light green where there's kind of agriculture, but the reserve, that mm-hmm. the community, it's very dark. And that area sits in what we call the Carolinian zone. Okay. That land mass represents about 1% of the land mass in Canada, mm-hmm. but it represents the most biodiverse area in all of Canada. Interesting. Old growth forest, species that don't exist anywhere else, and a diversity of species that uh, you can't find anywhere else in Canada. And so that contrast from where I grew up, even from looking at the city and the economic development that occurs and the impact that that has on the land and completely gray in certain areas of Hamilton and only a small drive away, you arrive at the indigenous community where mm-hmm. I grew up, which is the most biodiverse area in all of Canada. Interesting. And so it's these conflicting, Contrast. uh, contrasting mm-hmm. um, perspectives that have shaped my experience growing up and weighed heavily on the way that I view the world and entrepreneurship and business and relationships. Wow. I, thank you so much for opening us up that way and, and sharing a lot about your family and your background and uh, both sides of your family and that contrast that you observe in your family and your in your direct relations and then also in the land and the environment that you found yourself. It's this uh, kind of the space of being on the edge between two worlds. And um, one thing I wanted to touch on that you kind of mentioned as you were talking and saying, you know, the things that you saw kind of in your the Polish side of your family and then the things you were noticing in your Mohawk community and uh, impacts from the Indian Act that were preventing people from accumulating wealth in the modern world in the way that we assume that wealth is generated and 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 how we value things today so you could see these kind of con- conflicting opportunities as it were yeah. and uh you know we we've, we've talked before so i know you're you're really into um finding new ways to do things entrepreneurship startups all these kinds of things and we're going to journey into how you started to think about becoming an entrepreneur. But was there something about that dichotomy between the two things that got you interested in entrepreneurship? Or was there something that was there where you because you, you, you mentioned that there were these kind of these two different ways of uh, approaching things. Was there something there that sort of got you interested or led you in that direction? I'm not certain if there was something that as a result of that experience and those observations that led me specifically to entrepreneurship. But it certainly 
reinforced, um, you know, okay, so entrepreneurship, if I think about that by definition, you know, there's kind of the basic definition, which is just around creating a business for profit. And then the more modern definition, which is really around trying to observe problems and or complex problems that exist in the world and try to try to find solutions to those. And so on that more modern definition, I think that's where I saw an opportunity that maybe is not being widely practiced around trying to reconcile those differences mm -hmm. to create solutions mm -hmm. to, to help change things for the better, whether, you know, business, society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so in a sense, yeah, but I don't know when that, I can't pinpoint a time when mm -hmm. I was like, oh yeah, like this mm -hmm. is, this mm -hmm. is also valuable for business or something. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and what was it for you that, um, cause I know you have an, uh, I, I feel like you told me once, I could be wrong about this, correct me. I feel like you told me once that you started a skate shop or a skate business, or I, I know that you had uh, some some different things you were interested in at a kind of uh, a young age. So what was your kind of uh, first foray that made you say, okay, I want to solve some problems, make some money, go down this path? A lot of people we've talked to have said they didn't even know the word entrepreneurship. Um, that wasn't a word that uh, occurred to them or that they had even considered themselves to be. Was there something that kind of made you interested in going down that path or something that happened uh, early in your life? Well, okay, now we're getting into some interesting stuff. And this may also <laughs> help answer the last question as well. Everywhere that I would go and, and I would w walk throughout the world with my perspective, I would find that there was some resistance to indigenizing mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you get to a certain level of decision makers and that's just not a priority. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the top priority. It's certain, in some cases, not a priority at all. And so entrepreneurship was appealing to me in the sense of, well, I have the ability to lead and decide how this looks. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, nobody really was mainstream talking about two-eyed seeing, and 10 years ago, mm -hmm. certainly nobody was. Mm -hmm. So thinking about you know, how to blend indigenous principles or ideas or perspectives into business, whether it's like policy or decision-making criteria, like these weren't even topics. Like if mm -hmm. you brought them up, you know, you would almost be like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. looked at like you're like, what are you talking about? That this is <laughs> this is for you to do in your community, not here. Mm -hmm. So that element of having some autonomy mm -hmm. over how to approach design or solutions or business and trying to bring that into the space on the t and so I remember I came out of like I just finished doing. Uh, I got my diploma in business mm -hmm. and I went out into the workforce and I just didn't like it. Like nothing about it set me on fire. You know, <laughs> I, I actually remember the first thing I did out of college was uh, I went for an insurance interview and the final round of interviews, they said like, you're going to go out with one of our sales reps into the market and we're going to show you kind of like a day in the life. Mm -hmm. And I think there might have been like skewed to try to show me like what a rough day in the life is mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, you know, see if you mm -hmm. can cut it. And it was, you know, door to door, knocking on doors, oh God. trying to sell insurance. <laughs> and I remember 
there was an elderly couple and we ended up sitting around the table with this insurance sales rep and these two elderly people and the way that they were selling the insurance, something about it just didn't sit right mm-hmm. for me. And mm-hmm. I, I, I left that day and, and I thought, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I can do more than this. Mm-hmm. And... And so I kind of ventured out to think, well, you know, what energizes me? Mm-hmm. I was really into, I didn't even skateboard. I was into the <laughs> style uh-huh. and the culture and like my friends did and it was, I was around it and just like the fashion and it was really more streetwear. We weren't really a skate shop. It was more like streetwear clothing that, you know, kind of had some, some like skate elements. Style. Yeah, yeah. 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 Some finesse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just kind of wanted to do something fun and also a little bit of school of hard knocks. Like mm-hmm. yeah, I thought like, I'm young, I have time for this. I have energy. If I fail here, I have tons of time mm-hmm. to reassess and go back out mm-hmm. into the world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it just seemed like an acceptable risk and it seemed like a way better option than <laughs> cold calling uh, for insurance policies. Uh, yes. Well, uh, skater lifestyle business over uh, insurance. Now we all need insurance. It's all, you know, it's necessary. <laughs> so insur- insurance company, please don't cut me off. I need you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all those are, all those are good things. All those are good things. Keep the premiums low. Yeah. Low premiums, <laughs> low premiums. Yeah. Yeah. Low premiums. And um, so as you have that experience and building on kind of the things that you were sort of seeing in your life and your community, and as a, a person, did you grow did, where you grew up in Hamilton? So were you surrounded by your your Mohawk community? Were were people in your community supportive of the idea of going into business or starting a business or how was that perceived? And were there? But yeah, I guess when we could start there, how, was that how was that perceived? At the time, it wasn't something that I vocalized. You know, I, I actually when I opened that store, I came to Mi'kma'ki to open that. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't even close to my community. I didn't uh, attempt to access any capital from any, you know, entrepreneurial grants or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was almost like for me, kind of a pilgrimage. It was like, mm-hmm. let me go to an unfamiliar place and try something that I've never tried before. And there's maybe perhaps also a little bit of an element of like the disruptor mm-hmm. in my identity as well. Mm-hmm. And like my community is, his, this is something. So my community is is pretty well known to be vocal advocates mm-hmm. for calling out injustices and and standing up, like quite fearless in terms mm-hmm. of standing up to government and mm-hmm. policymakers and, and really claiming and reclaiming things that are legal promises. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like if any other community, so all my friends that are from different nation families, Mm -hmm. Anishinaabe and Mi'kma'ki, any one of them who has spent time Mm -hmm. with Mohawk people and Mm -hmm. specifically Mohawk women Mm -hmm. would say like, there's a lot of comments like in a a playful way, Mm -hmm. like don't mess around with them or like, (laughs) you know, Oh, we need someone to like speak up, like, let's go and, and gather the Mohawks, you know? So it's yeah. like, there's this element of like, uh, I don't want to say like resistance, but disruption, like positive disruption mm-hmm. and the willing and the, the desire to want to pursue that. And so I think there's an element of that that's entrepreneurial as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like 
no, I'm not okay with the status quo. I'm going to go create my own version mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was watching, uh, uh, first of all, I will attest to the uh, strength of Mohawk women. This is a random piece of information. But uh, when I was in high school, um, I went to school in New England, and um, there were quite a few Mohawk women on my volleyball team. They were <laughs> hardcore. You do not want to mess with them. Um, and a couple on the, the women's hockey team. I didn't play hockey, but they were, you know, don't mess with them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they were they were some pretty uh, strong and opinionated uh, characters, at least on my team, from my limited experience. Well, it's interesting, you know, we, we talked a little bit about your family, your background, some of the kind of disruptor things that have sort of uh, you, you feel are coming out of your heritage and uh, your Mohawk community, and then also trying some things here in Mi'kma'ki or in Nova Scotia, as other people might know it as. And uh, you've been involved with working with indigenous businesses and startups and uh, other things like that. What's kind of going on right now in sort of indigenous startup culture or business culture that's uh, interesting or exciting? What do you see that's kind of going on now that people might not be aware of? I know there's this whole movement around indigenomics and things like that. Yes. Yeah. So what's happening that's exciting you? You know, the exciting things that are happening around indigenous business development and entrepreneurship, uh, there's first, there's a lot of capital being allocated Mm. towards uh, like prioritizing the advancement of indigenous businesses and and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So there's some great programs and grants and opportunities Mm. um, and energy behind trying to encourage more. Mm And I think that's a necessity. So that I feel like there's a little bit of a renaissance period happening and a resurgence around encouraging people to look around and, and explore problems and tap into indigenous knowledge and culture mm-hmm. as something that translates into value for business. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's exciting. And this is areas like our small business entrepreneurship uh, in indigenous communities, there's a it's heavily skewed towards art. Mm, yes, yes. And artisanship and craftsmanship. Right. And so, you know, leveraging the use of technology to get exposure to new markets through online sales. And not too long ago, you'd have to go to mm-hmm. the reserve and find a craft shop to be able to get really unique products. And, mm-hmm. and now we're able to kind of get those out into the market. There's also been a lot of call outs that have been happening mm-hmm. over the past little while around like, are these authentic indigenous products? Because oh, the commercialization yeah. and you co-opting, know, kind of, the, yes. co-opting of people's cultures. Yeah, yeah. 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 A little bit of that kind of culture vulture stuff was happening. <laughs> and, and so now there's some awareness around that. And mm-hmm. people are kind of asking like, where is this source? Where is this procured from? And is this authentic? And then honoring those, those artists and the unique designs from the, the different cultures. There's a ton of community supports, and I believe that on the other side, so outside of that art, uh, like heavily skewed and weighted emphasis on getting our artists exposure and being able to find markets for mm-hmm. them to sell their creation. On the other side, there's a huge push 
and also understanding and awareness around resource development. And so the big major infrastructure projects and resource projects that are going to be required to move us into the future and mm -hmm. this push towards the big green deal and all these things, mm -hmm. there's an understanding that indigenous equity partners mm -hmm. need to be in place. Mm -hmm and indigenous communities need to be engaged. And so a lot of businesses are coming up in and around that space, like mm -hmm. remediation from remediation mm -hmm. all the way through to green energy and different wind, solar, geothermal projects, and then solar and the fisheries. You know, mm -hmm. here we saw a great partnership in terms of Clearwater mm -hmm. and the coalition of indigenous communities. So uh, from smaller scale lifestyle businesses mm -hmm. all the way up to major mm -hmm developments and huge infrastructure projects, there's a participation level that we've never seen. And there's an energy and awareness that we've, we've like, I've never seen yeah. before. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I feel like kind of what you're saying is true. I think for a very long time, people associated kind of the craft industries and baskets and uh, traditional clothing or imagery and things like that as uh, those are, um, acceptable spaces for indigenous uh, businesses and uh, startups and things like that. And But we know that in the background that there have been these other major initiatives. The Clearwater one is a perfect one. And here in Nova Scotia, we see, you know, whether it's up in Cape Breton or the wind farms that have been uh, developed by Eskasoni and, and some of the other places, folks are showing up with real economic drivers and really participating and kind of leading the way mm. and uh, really hope that continues. Yeah. And, you know, this is an observation I've seen as well, is that there's a lot more of our communities coming forward and leaning into our strengths mm. and not being like, oh, this is what business is telling us we need to do. Mm -hmm. But like, this is what we do really, really well. Mm -hmm. And so you know, land stewardship and land management, that is, I think, a direct correlation to our involvement in infrastructure projects and mm -hmm. mining and these things that are earth moving projects. And it's imperative that indigenous people are involved because we understand the geography and have a relationship with the land that goes back thousands of years. On the art and creative side, that's people tapping into their identity and their culture and their community and they're sharing that out mm -hmm. with the world. Mm -hmm. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about some of the other elements that there's a huge movement around entrepreneurship, one of which would be in the storytelling space around mm -hmm. content creation. So in that kind of creative industry, as it relates to film, television, mm -hmm. documentary TV mm -hmm. series, and a lot of new up and coming indigenous producers mm -hmm. yes. and directors and actors. And so storytelling has always been a, a, a means with which we would communicate and share knowledge. And now, like through the use of digital media, a mm -hmm. lot of that stuff is starting to make its way out into the mainstream, which mm -hmm. helps everything because people get familiar, they understand the stories, they understand, well, what part of what these stories that are being told in Canada also relate to my identity as a Canadian, mm -hmm. like as a non-Indigenous Canadian, but the history and the truth and the culture these things that are being shared, they're directly related to my identity mm -hmm. because of my proximity to the land. Mm -hmm. So those things that are, are really valuable and, and channeling them into business, mm -hmm. you know, and entrepreneurship, I think is really cool. And it's a cool thing that I'm observing. It's uh, less of a propensity to try to focus on things that it's like, even personally, I think about this, am I going to spend time trying to 
develop an area of my weakness that's going to take me like years to become proficient at. Mm -hmm. But if I focus on something that's already my strength and I just go really hard and focus on developing that, mm -hmm. I'm going to be really, really great at that one thing versus I might be mediocre if I invest mm -hmm. two years into something that I'm not great at. And so it's like, I think I'm starting to see how that's all kind of taking shape across mm -hmm. the landscape, you know. Interesting. Yes, I think that's always a struggle is like, how can you be really great at something or go uh, turn your passions into um, your profession or to into something that's meaning for you? Uh, I have a question like um, if you had some advice for a young indigenous entrepreneur or, you know, somebody from your community or somebody from the community here who's interested in this path, you know, they're starting to think about this journey. They're starting to see the success, you know, as you mentioned, through other folks doing sort of content creation, you know, some some of the larger business opportunities and, and things like that. What would be your advice for somebody who wanted to kind of go down this pathway of sort of exploring in a way that resonates? Well... I'm trying. I, I want to say something that's not Googleable. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? I feel like, yeah, it's like persevere, try harder, yeah. be fearless, all yeah, these things, yeah. right? But I think the first piece of advice I would share is I would encourage young Indigenous entrepreneurs and young entrepreneurs in general just to think about what is your motivation mm -hmm. and what energizes you when you close your eyes and you envision what your life would be like in a is running a business and like why i think that's important is because the different level of complexity of different businesses and i think there are lifestyle businesses that are amazing that you mm -hmm. you know you can have a little shop like when i had the little retail mm -hmm. store and make a living and enjoy it and have fun and you know engage with fashion like like that was great but then i came to a point in that situation where i thought what i actually want to do is much bigger than this mm -hmm. like i want to have a bigger impact mm -hmm. personally and so just to kind of think about the problem that you're trying to solve and, and the business and is this a lifestyle business or is this like a tech startup or or mm -hmm. is this a manufacturing company? Like and understanding the difference in complexities mm -hmm. of, of and opportunities that exist in those things. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is every time I talk to young entrepreneurs anywhere, top three issues they always bring up or top three challenges are barriers to entry mm -hmm. with an emphasis on access to capital. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of money floating around out here in the world. And some of it is, a lot of it is earmarked for indigenous majority owned businesses. And so, you know, sometimes it's easier to look at where the money is going to flow and think about the problems in that space and try to design a solution mm -hmm. than to try to create a business and then look for money mm. that doesn't fit into the criteria of where it's flowing. Mm. So. Like some entrepreneurs, they're not in love with their idea necessarily. Mm -hmm. They're in love with the idea of being an entrepreneur in any sense. And mm -hmm. so if that's the case, think about what might make those barriers to entry a little bit easier, mm -hmm. which is like, okay, a billion dollars is getting allocated to housing. Well, maybe we can focus on housing solutions because mm -hmm. it's going to be e easier for us to be able to access money to get this idea off the ground. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, I like it. That seems like some good, keen advice. Um, I might have one more question for you, if that's okay. And we can uh, always loop back around if we need to. But um, a question that we like to ask many of our guests who show up here on the Onside podcast is a question that comes up quite often, which is whether or not being an entrepreneur is something that is nurtured or if it's something that's in your nature. And I don't know if you've thought about that before, but uh, what do you think? Is it nurture or nature? Okay, so I'm going to take this opportunity to circle back to the definition that we talked about before earlier, I may have referenced, which was sort of that entrepreneurship definition. Because mm-hmm. before there was business, before the concept of economics existed, there was only creation. We, don't, we could only interact with each other and things, our environment. And so from this context, the basic definition of entrepreneurship, the act of starting a business mm. for profit, this concept isn't something that really exists within creation. You know, that's something that humans created as a function of our economic relationships. Mm. So from that perspective, I think entrepreneurship is nurture. You're really taught that this is how the economy works and this is how business mm-hmm. and this is how you start a business. And and so, yeah, I, th- I think from that business mind, because if you take away the business element, it, it doesn't really work. On the more modern version, so the act of transforming the world by solving large scale complex problems, mm-hmm. this, I believe, is is nature. I think there is something inside all of us, this desire to evolve and improve and make things better for one another and mm-hmm. and everything around us. So that desire to have open eyes and an open mind and find solutions, that I believe exists inside everybody. Mm-hmm. But doing it for money under the definition of just like creating a business for profit, mm-hmm. I think that's something that we learn yeah. and we have learned. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that is awesome. I want to uh, thank you so much for your your time today uh, and sharing all of your insights and stories with us. Um, if folks want to connect with you, what is the best way that they can connect with you, Michael? The best way, uh, I'm, I'm highly engaged with LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, email is pretty active and, and LinkedIn, um, I'm on there once a day and kind of scanning around, <laughs> seeing what's happening, seeing what indigenous entrepreneurs are doing. Uh-huh. And and, um, and so uh, that's like preferred way to get in touch. And I'm, I'm pretty easily accessible that way. Okay. That sounds awesome. And I just want to thank all of our uh, listeners today and uh, please connect with Onside. You can come to our website, onsidenow.ca, or you can also follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter as well. We would like to thank Communities, Culture, and Heritage for your support. We're so grateful for your support and helping us make this podcast. Thanks so much. See you next time. This has been a Podstarter production. production.